Welcome to another episode of The Dark and Down. I'm with my co-host, Richard Cox, and with us today is Raymond Holcomb. Ray Holcomb has over 30 years' experience as a law enforcement and intelligence officer. He served for 23 years as an FBI special agent, eight as a strategic planner with the National Counterterrorism Center, and four as a state homeland security advisor. Ray's FBI career included 15 years investigating foreign espionage, major drug trafficking organizations, organized crime, and national security matters. He also served as a member of the FBI's New York SWAT team and was appointed commander of the team from 1998 to 2001. Under Ray's leadership, the New York SWAT team assumed an expanded role, being involved in high-risk domestic arrests, providing overseas security enhanced investigative capability for FBI teams deploying internationally in response to terrorism. He's also the author of Endless Enemies, Inside FBI Counterterrorism, to which we're going to be talking about a bit today. Ray, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Adam. You know, you always seem to have a sheer fascination with being involved with law enforcement at a very early age. Why is that? I think I grew up at a time when um, uh, there was a fervor, a patriotic fervor in the country. Um, I'm talking about um, post, post-World War II, post-Korean War, the Cold War was at its height. We were taught in school that um, uh, you know we were proud to be Americans and that uh, the greatest threat to our democracy was communism. And that's that's how we were all brought up. You made your ranks through a lot of the uh, units within New York. Um, and you began working under John O'Neill at the National Security Division. How did you become part of this unit and what did it entail? Um, the, it, it was a special unit, Adam. Um, it was focused on counterintelligence, which is, you know, it's spotting or identifying the people who are spying on us. Mm -hmm. um, I was, I was selected after working on a, uh, uh, organized crime squad and a counter uh, counter narcotics squad. I was um, sponsored by other agents on that unit, and I was chosen to to be part of that unit, which was um, under the oversight of John O'Neill. You also tend to mention in chapter eight of your book that the uh, trip to Tanzania and Dar es Salaam in the aftermath of the U.S. embassy bombings made you realize that the extent of the threat that John O'Neill used to talk about regarding bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and this, how this new terrorism posed to the United States. Can you explain more of what uh, you meant here in the book? Well, um, you know, my, my focus, like, like many in the FBI up until that point, had been uh, organized crime, uh, and that was a regional problem. Every region in the states had, had a problem with the particular crime family, and then um, Asian narcotics. Would, by that, I mean that there was a tremendous flow of heroin coming in from Unsa uh, and Golden Triangle through through the former um, uh, Commonwealth. It was coming in through Canada, down into the United States, and there, there was a significant influx of um, high-quality heroin into North America. Um, so we were focused on that. Um, 
And uh, at the same time, I guess it was 93 World first World Trade Center bombing, and then you had the Treblinka plot, and then you had um, the bombings, the bombings in uh, East Africa, the embassy bombings in East Africa. That's when some of us, um, and it didn't take a whole lot of thinking, but some of us began to realize there was a foreign group mm. who was dead serious about coming after the United States. Um, but still, even after the embassy bombings, it wasn't until the USS, the attack on the USS Cole, that I think um, headquarters, Washington D.C. In, in, in general, realized that this this was this was a very serious threat. You know, regarding regarding the embassy bombings, and what reminded me of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing was the fact that the FBI evidence response team found a piece of the twisted metal called the chassis from the truck with the VIN number on it. Uh, can you talk more about this and what, what, and what came from it? Yeah, I, I mean, they, that's one of the things the FBI always did really well. Um, you know, conducting a crime scene and collecting evidence. Our forensic teams are, are well-trained uh, in the forefront of the science um, and they're dogged. Um, they were on the ground uh, literally, you know, within a day of those bombings, we had people on the ground and they were conducting a classic, classic crime scene searches. I've been part of those. They're methodical. They're, uh, they require a lot of planning. Uh, they, they require a lot of patience. Um, but the people who do that that's all, that's primarily what they do. And uh, some hundreds of meters out from the bomb, uh, one of the agents, on it, probably on his hands and knees, found this jagged piece of metal and noticed immediately that there was a VIN number or something that resembled a VIN number imprinted on the metal. Well, they took that VIN number, uh, raised the VIN number, and very quickly they were able to track it down to a vehicle that had been imported uh, into into Africa from Southeast Asia, I can't recall the exact details. And then they tracked it down to the dealership in Africa that mm -hmm. served that vehicle, and they found the records uh, that identified the purchaser. Um, classic. It was classic, classic investigative uh, effort. It was classic. It was. It was just what the FBI and other police agencies do all the time. Okay, so fast forward to Yemen, which is you you were sent to assist in the investigation with your security team uh, regarding the USS Cole. However, you are actually met with a very hostile environment. Yemeni officials, sympathetic to Al-Qaeda, yet unruly crowds who had a U.S. Yemeni ambassador in Barbara Bodine who wanted to be a primary face of the latest news to Washington, uh, was a, a, an instigator for John O'Neill. Yet you made some progress in the case by interviewing locals and finding key bits of evidence. Can you tell us more about your experience there in the case? Well, again, um, we had several, we worked that case with the Naval Criminal, Criminal Investigative Service. And we developed a very close bond with some of their investigators. Um, 
And we were dogged. Ali Sufan was one of our lead investigators. Uh, he's Muslim. He speaks Arabic. And he was very well received. Um, and he, has a, he, he had a great style. Um, he was very well received. And he started to make progress. The, the ambassador... Ambassador Bodine uh, was clearly uncomfortable that she wasn't running the investigation. Mm -hmm. And there was some uh, personality issues between her and John O'Neill, who deployed with the first team. He was on the ground. He was on the on-scene commander force and the, the first group that arrived there. Um, and Ambassador Bodine and John O'Neill did not see eye to eye. Mm -hmm. um, John O'Neill was sent home. Uh, she PNG John O'Neill said, "You can't you know, persona non grata." Sent him back to the U.S. Um, she tried to control our investigation. For instance, when we'd been we would be interviewing or interrogating suspects, uh, we of course would allow uh, a. Yemeni officer, detective, investigator be present in the room. Um, but Ambassador Bodine demanded that there also be State Department people in the room. Um, we pushed back on that and said, no, if this, if this goes to trial, your people are going to be witnesses and they're going to be have to come stateside and they're going to have to testify in the trial as to what they heard and what they saw. Well, that didn't work. So eventually, uh, the New York, the, the people in charge of the New York division, John O'Neill being one of them, decided to shut down the investigation. We were making great progress. He said, we can't work under these circumstances, and he brought us all home. Um, and it came to a stalemate. I mean, the, it was dead in the water at that moment because we couldn't function under State Department oversight. We couldn't do our job properly under State Department oversight. You, well, the main issue between Al-Qaeda Communications Hub was the nexus between the hub and two of the 9-11 hijackers in Khalid Abidar and Nawab al-Hazmi. Right. The CIA and NSA had known about these two and they had traveled to a meeting in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Mm -hmm. However, the FBI were not allowed to share this information to headquarters after seeing the cable that came in, which stated that they were coming to the United States and had dual U.S. visas. Right. Well, why do you think the CIA did not permit the FBI to share this pertinent information with you? Well, there, you can understand there has always been interagency tension, always been interagency rivalry. For the FBI has. Uh, preeminence in, in, in criminal investigations inside the United States. And that's our, that's our domain. And that includes uh, counterterrorism and counterintelligence investigations inside the United States. Now, if, if, if an American citizen or American property is somehow uh, injured uh, or overseas, we still have, the FBI still has the preeminent role in investigating that, that crime. Um, 
the CIA and NSA on the other on the other hand, their their prior primary mission is collecting intelligence, signal intelligence, human intelligence, whatever the fashion or the form around the world. And they collect that intelligence and use it for various purposes. Uh, for one thing, they keep uh, the president of the United States and the National Security Council abreast of, of worldwide threats and what's taking place. Um, so we have these, these, these roles that oftentimes butt up against each other. And um, this was a classic situation where they were collecting intelligence on individuals and, and they believed this is what I this is what I've been told. They believe that once uh, again, correct me, who was who was the first to arrive in the US? Khalid al Midar the Wapa husband. Yeah. Well Midar, they believed they had him under surveillance from the get-go. And they believed once he was in the United States that they could approach him and recruit him. They knew he had connections to Al-Qaeda, obviously, because he met Al-Qaeda-linked individuals in Malaysia. So they, they were intending to approach him and recruit him once he was inside the United States. Well, the latest, you know, just to follow up on that, and it proves your point, because the Canastrail document is from Donald Canastrell, as he's part of the Office of Military Commissions investigating uh, Saudi involvement with the 9-11 attacks. And what he found from interviewing people at the bin Laden issue station and congressional officials was that there was a coordinated effort by the CIA to withhold information from the FBI about these two men. And not only that, they were running an operation which would be deemed illegal along with Saudi intelligence in monitoring both of these men inside the United States. And there, there is actually a part in the Joint House Inquiry, which I've made a, even a special podcast episode on, where Carl Levin actually asks George Tenet, the, the, the DCI, basically telling him, you know, did you even know about this cable that came in? And George Tenet lies and basically says, nobody read that cable in the March timeframe, but yet over 50 case officers and analysts have read that cable. Mm -hmm. And of course, what, what, what we've just talked about is that this information was withheld because I've interviewed Mark Rossini from the FBI, and he mm -hmm. basically said that, yes, um, that I was not allowed with Doug Miller not to share that information with FBI headquarters or I would be arrested. Yeah. They, they, and, and you, you know this, Adam. There, there was a thing called the the curtain or the wall, right? Yes. Yeah, and you had a lower burden of proof if you're going to work counterintelligence cases, right? There, there was a lower burden of proof to start an investigation on an individual in a counterintelligence case. So, if you had a, a clear suspicion, uh, uh, you were given certain warrants and authorities to eavesdrop. Or, or investigate individuals, including American citizens. And then on the other side of that wall, right, is your criminal criminal side, where you have that, that higher burden of proof to open, you know, probable cause beyond a reasonable doubt. You have to, you have to convince the court that you have probable cause to conduct these intrusions. Uh, and, and 
to conduct these investigations, whereas you don't need that on the other side of the wall, hmm. intelligence side of it. Um, so there was always, a, and this is internal too to the FBI. I'm not, I'm not saying that the, the FBI was blameless because there were people in the FBI that were working side side by side with the CIA. Some of them were detailed over to to Langley, and they were working side by side with the CIA, and they were being okay. They were getting bits and pieces of what was going on, bits and pieces. They were they were greatly uncomfortable with the fact that they were they were told you can't share this information with the other side of your organization, with the criminal side of your organization. They were told that it would put them in in, in jeopardy, their clearances, and, and possibly even worse. So there were some folks that were put in that position that were unable to share some, and they didn't get all the information. They were getting, they were, they were seeing bits and pieces, right? So um, yeah, that that was taking place. You had the, the curtain, the wall, whatever it's been. You know, I, I would add here that I've read the 9-11 Commission report and I think by and large, and I know, I know a lot of people who testified in that report, I think by and large it's fairly accurate. I, would, I, I, I know a lot of people tend to, especially on the conspiracy side, tend to say that the report is false, but I, I would say it's an incomplete report Right. Only because it didn't add the NSA and the CIA's monitoring of the Yemen hub or the Able Danger program run by the Defense right. Intelligence Agency. Right. But you, you know, I, I just want to make something clear with you, Ray. You were in Yemen when the 9/11 attacks were taking place. Yeah. So you, and at the same time, you're 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 aware that there's a, a an Al Qaeda communication sub. But I want to ask you, were you or the FBI even aware? that the CIA and NSA were listening to the phone calls of the Al-Qaeda communications hub beginning in 96? No. At least at least those in the FBI who I had a, a, a close uh, a close relationship including Ali Stupan and some of our some of our top counterterrorism investigators no. As far as I know, no, they were not aware. It just seems to be like it's tough for me. This is I, I I know you were I know that there's a wall and that there's like a sharing of information that is basically tentative. Uh, you know, when Dan Cohen created the Alex Station, he basically wanted to have all the intelligence services basically. I don't know if it's naivety on his part, but basically working in conjunction with one another honestly. Right. But that wasn't the case right off the bat. Right. Whether it was Shoya disposition toward O'Neill or vice versa or a combination of both, but it seemed that there was this nexus, uh, this small nexus of analysts that basically did not want to share all information with the FBI uh, regarding uh, Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda affiliates in Yemen for whatever reason, for if they wanted to flip Al-Midar and Al-Hazmi, but look at the repercussions of what happened. Sure. And to me, to me, Ray, this is the biggest, like, I, I, I'm I very critical of NSA, CIA here, and mainly more so NSA because they seem to have been all but forgotten. But yet right. even the CIA basically says, and it's coming from Shoya, that the NSA was the goldmine of information regarding Al-Qaeda because at least they had a, they were monitoring bin Laden satellite phones. 
that began yeah. even in the early yeah. 90s. Mm -hmm. And of course, the Yemen hub since 96. I mean, that's that's a ton of information. Yep. It's it's hard to believe, isn't it, Adam? I was I remember the moment. I remember the moment in the Sanaa, the U.S. Embassy in Sanaa. I think it was within a day or two of the 9-11 attack. I remember the moment when Ali Soufan uh, came out of the uh, chief of station's office. Um, and he had a look of shock on his face. And he walked up to me and he said, and I'm paraphrasing here because who can remember 22 years ago, right? He looked, walked up to me with a look of shock on his face and he said, they've been listening, they've been listening for months and months. They, they knew, they knew that, that Al-Qaeda individuals have been dispatched and traveled to the U.S. And this is the first Ali Soufan, our lead investigator, ever heard of this. The chief of station that day shared that information for the first time with the FBI. Why did they do it? Why did they even share it? Well, you think about it. Think about what just happened. The, 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 the drums were beating, right? The drums were beating. America was very angry to the extent that even even um, the, the, the then president of, of uh, Yemen, um, Salah, right? He called us in, and I, I was Ali's, I and another agent were Ali's security. We went down to President Salah's office, and, and President Salah, personally apologized to Sufan and the NCIS official who was partnered with us for the attack. Um, he was literally, he was very emotional, very upset. Um, and it was at that point in time that we learned that the Yemenis had several Al-Qaeda uh, Al -Qaeda in custody and they had never told us for weeks uh, before they never mentioned that they had these people in custody. I believe that because of the drumbeat coming out of the United States, they were scared. They were scared that they would somehow be linked to Al-Qaeda. They were scared. I'm, by them, I mean the, the President Saleh and the Yemeni government. They were concerned that we were going to somehow blame them as accomplices with the attack. And at that point on, they couldn't have given us more assistance from that moment on. They couldn't have cooperated with us more. You know, uh, one thing I, I, le I learned about the book, too, was that Ali Soufan had, had gotten a really good rapport with Ramzi bin al-Sheib when he was captured. Mm -hmm. But just like with Abu Zubaydah, again... The CIA yeah. manages to steer yeah. the FBI away from any further progress. Yeah. Now, I'm going to ask for your opinion here. If if the FBI had been allowed to have longer unfettered access to bin al-Sheib and you had proper time to interrogate him, what do you think you could have gotten out of him that the CIA didn't? Um, you know, I wasn't privy to those. I wasn't in the room when when all of those interviews i won't call them interrogations they weren't interrogations yeah you weren't torturing it right no ali his his approach I, I watched him in action with other subjects his approach was to develop rapport and he became 
he became uh, almost like a father confessor to the to the to the subjects. Uh, he was he was uh, he was Islamic. He understood the Quran thoroughly, and within a short period of time, most of these subjects um, just confessed to him and opened up and, and, and told him most everything. It was miraculous. I saw him break a hunger strike in Guantanamo um, that had with a key suspect, a key subject. The hunger strike had been going on for a while and um, he was refusing to give any more information. Within 24 hours, Ali Soufan had him talking, uh, talking like a fire hose. So, um, Getting back to your question, I think Salah, President Salah, was worried. He was scared. He was scared that they were going to be linked to the attack and that they were going there was going to be retribution worldwide and that they were going to be part of they were going to get punished. So they couldn't from that point on, they were extremely cooperative. I know you're short Richard Richard, do you have any follow-up questions at all? No, you carry on, Adam. You're, you're asking everything I would. So I'll just, you carry on capturing the ship. So, well, you know, Ray, you know, as we wind down here, um, what we, we're 22 years now passed on the attacks and we still haven't had a trial. Uh, do you think we'll ever have a trial regarding uh, the no. Guantanamo 5 that are suspected of the attacks? No, never. I don't think well, so. Why we did, it? hey, Adam, we did from the FBI perspective, we did everything we could to handle those investigations, just like with every terrorism investigation, I alluded to this earlier. We tried to conduct every one of those, those investigations by the book so that it was, it was always on our mind that the way we asked the questions, the way we treated the suspect or the subject, um, the way we documented what that individual said would someday be brought into court in the United States and it had to pass muster. So everything we did, we did by, with our judicial system in mind, did it, did it slow us down? Did it make us uh, a little less effective than what some of the other organizations were doing? Maybe, possibly, yes. But everything we produced was viable in a U.S. court of law. Everything and our, our and that was our end game, and we were always about prosecuting these people back in the United States. And I told I told you I, maybe I can allude to this in Tanzania when the individual we were interviewing and interviewing in conjunction with the Tanzanians, he had the he had managed the safe house for the for the bombers, and after days and days and days of of light interrogation, let's call it interviewing, um, he finally uh, talked, he finally said he wanted to talk. He wanted to tell us everything he knew. So what did we do? My first job was to get on the phone and call John O'Neill in Washington, D.C. And what was I told? Get him a lawyer. I walked back into the room, right, with a, with a, with a handful of Tanzanian police, State Department police, CIA people, and I said, "Stop, stop talking right now. Where can we get and where can we get a counsel or an attorney 
for this individual. They looked at me in shock. And finally, they said, wait, there's a law school downtown. They jumped in a car. This is a true story. They jumped in this car, drive downtown, dragged a law school professor. Now, you, you understand that in Tanzania, they still follow the common law to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, similar similar uh, jurisprudence as we do. They grabbed this professor out of the classroom. He's terrified because he doesn't know where he's being taken or what he's done. They drag, he, he, he still had his wig and his cloak when they dragged him into the one police plaza, as we called it, in Tanzania. And he was he was scared. He didn't know why he was being and, and he walked in the room. We said, Sir, you're now you're now the attorney for this for this subject. And he took the subject in the back room. They had a conversation for about an hour. He came back out and he said, My client is prepared to give you a full statement, which he did. After that was over. <laughs> We asked him, we asked the attorney, how, how did that happen? How did you, how did you um, get him to cooperate so quickly? He said he'd rather spend his prison sentence in, a, in an American prison than a Tanzanian prison. You know, my last question, Ryan, you know, history tends to repeat itself in some form. Right. Do you feel that a 9-11 style attack could happen in the future and the worry would be that certain domestic intelligence services would not share information in the future? Do you think something like that could happen? I, I, you know what? I don't, Adam. I think, I think that we've become such a, in some regards, totally overly transparent, overly transparent society, right? Whether it's because of social media, the internet, whatever. It's really hard to keep a secret in the United States. I think that we are due, and it's coming, a 9-11-like attack. We're, we're allowing hundreds, if not more, of potential potential terrorists into our southern border. Um, you know, you see what's going on in Israel right now. I think it's coming. There's no question about it. Um, and I think our agencies are distracted. I think our key intelligence security agencies have been distracted for, for years now. Um, there hasn't been a legitimate concern about international terrorism. Uh, they're more focused on, uh, you know, concerns about domestic terrorism and, and other issues than they are about the Islamic extremist threat. But it's coming back. There's no question about it. Um, but the intelligence agencies that, that should have been identifying this Hamas buildup in Gaza, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But it looks to me like the Israelis were caught totally off guard. Why were these... We'll find out. I guess at some point we're going to learn how that happened. But I think our intelligence agencies... And our security agencies are totally distracted, whether that's intentional or not. I could only speculate, but I think they're they're focused on the wrong thing. Ray Holcomb, former FBI special agent and author of Endless Enemies Inside FBI Counterterrorism. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ray.